We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience. Let's dig in to the NFL Draft. If you out there want to get into a draw for 100 DK bucks, here's what you do. You subscribe to the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast. You leave a five-star review. The best there is. Something you like about the Pat Mayo Experience and your DraftKings handle, boom. You're going to be in a draw for 100 DK bucks. You want to get into a draw for 20 DraftKings dollars for this video? Hit the like button for the video. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section and tell me your favorite prospect in this NFL Draft that no one is talking about right now. Maybe it turns out they suck. I don't know. But whoever you like the best, you put it in there. It's a random draw. You get your hands on 20 DK bucks. Joining me on the line right now, because I want to really dig into this, and people know that I don't know a ton about college football or the draft. I like to let the people who do know this stuff inform me about it, and then in turn, inform you about it. So from The Athletic and... Football game plan. I highly recommend everyone go to the football game plan YouTube channel and check this out. Emery Hunt, F Ball. Now I got it all mixed up in my mind. F Ball Game Day on Twitter, who you should definitely follow. What's going on, my man? How you holding up? I'm doing fine, man. It's F Ball Game Plan on Twitter. F Ball Game Plan. See, but this quarantine is wreaking havoc with my mind. <laughs> I can't keep anything straight. So that's why I need you to you know, give me a good path to go down here as we talk about some of these prospects. And first of all, I want to get your take on you grade so many players and how you actually go about doing this because you're calling games on Saturday, you're doing the NFL, you're going to see these all-star games, you're watching the film. What is the actual process of gathering all this information? Well, I'm glad you asked that because when you look at how you break down um, your calendar, again, in the fall, uh, summer I'm always out at either training camp or on college campuses interviewing coaches and you know, starting the groundwork there of getting guys names that coaches say, Hey, this is a guy that, you know, the NFL teams have been focused on. So I just add those guys to my list because in the fall I'm covering NFL games. Like you said, I call college games on Saturday 
and I try to find a certain uh, game or two that I can go and scout in person uh, that's not on Saturday. So let's say if Boston College plays on a Friday night, I'll go up to Boston College, get that game in. Let's say I have a broadcast at noon, and that game is over with at about 3, 3.30, and there's a 7 o'clock game in Jersey or something like that. Let's say Rutgers is playing somewhere at 7 or there's a team nearby. I can go and scout that game as well. So I'm always trying to find more football to watch. But my draft proce- uh, process starts in January. I go to all the different all-star games. I actually broadcast the Tropical Bowl and the FCS Bowl every year, which is the postseason all-star game for uh, small college prospects. So I'm there. I'm at the College Gridiron Showcase uh, in Texas. Uh, and then I hit the Shrine game and did the Senior Bowl. And so I, I use all that information. Then I go back and I watch film for about two and a half weeks, three games per prospect. So I get about a good 700 to 750 prospects graded before I hit the combine. And then I just go to the combine and just conduct interviews uh, with prospects that way. So my film work and grades are done before you get the chance to get influenced by how a guy works out at the combine or what you see out there on pro day. So what do you see between watching a player in person? So if you've had a lot of experience, if they play in the Northeast, you see them play all the time, and you can go to these games, watch them in person, versus watching them in an all-star game type format, when obviously the competition level across the board is a lot higher, but they're not a usual part of a team. Like, How do you separate one from another and what you're looking for? you got to look at certain things. Um, For instance, if you're at a game live, you get a really true, honest, look at how you know big guys are you know if 6'1 is really 6'1 if you know 215 pounds is 215 pounds and I played college football and I'm 5'10 215 oh when I played so now I'm about 225 so I look at at those measurables and say okay I know what that looks like and I know what you know the old college two inch cheat 20 pound or 10 pound uh, gain that you add people add to people so you get a good feel for how guys are, are built. And also you get a really good gauge on how fast guys are. Speed looks fast on film, but it, it hits you differently live, just like throwing the football hits you differently uh, live. So you get a good feel for that. You also get a good feel for how guys interact on the sideline, whether they're going to the sideline with their teammates getting adjusted and you know working on you know a strategy to go back out there on the field. Uh, so all of that stuff you can't see on film. Um, but when you're out there, let's say at an all-star game, you want to, you have to remember you're at an all-star game. Everyone is out there looking to put their best foot forward. Let's say, for instance, you have a receiver that kills it during the all-star week and you just allow that to be your evaluation. Well, you could be, you know, mistaken for, you can mistake him for a premier prospect. Uh, but when you go back and watch this film and if it jobs with what you see on what you saw live, then it makes sense. Or you see a guy that just really put out a great week. Uh, during an all-star setting where it's not real, you know, real life competition as far as the game is you know, concerned. Um, and you go back and watch this film. Let's say if a guy runs fast at the combine and you go back and watch the film, you're like, well, he plays like a, a guy that ran a five, three and a 40 yet. He ran a four, six in Indy. So you want to see how both kind of mesh together. Uh, but the tape should trump all how well a guy does when the actual game is being played should trump anything else that he does. How do you differentiate between game speed and something like combine speed, where if someone does run like a 4-3, like obviously that guy is fast, but can they hit that level during a game? I would think it would kind of work the opposite way, where if someone runs an underwhelming 40 speed, but that's the speed that they actually run in a game that remains consistent. Is it hard to differentiate between that? 
Not really, um, because you do realize once the season ends, let's say for some teams, if you're not going to a bowl game, your season ends in late November. For those that play in a bowl game, your season ends in December. So you have essentially whenever your season ends, two to sometimes two and a half months of training to run a 40. Um, And the 40 is all about technique. And that's why you see guys have those different numbers and what they play like. So you may see a guy that runs a 4-3, but when he's out there playing consistent down and down out, he's playing like a 4-5. And that's the true speed. The fast guys are going to be fast regardless. And guys tend to play faster. You Again, if someone was to chase you right now, you probably hit your top speed pretty quick. You know, and so that's how it usually is. Uh, when you're put in pressure situations and that adrenaline is kicking kicking in, you're going to play fast. You're going to you know, run fast. So that's why it's always troubling when those that don't go out there in Indianapolis and run really fast times or run really fast times at pro days. I would wish we could just take the 40-yard dash away. Therefore, people don't have to worry about training to run in a straight line that we could really focus on functional football drills. So what do you find outside of the 40? What skill that you look for in scouting? And obviously each position is going to be different, but just in general that they don't measure at the combine or do a very poor job of measuring at the combine. Like I would think that something like, being elusive or having a really quick first three steps and getting away from someone and making someone miss. It's really hard to judge that. Like you mentioned, if, if people aren't actually chasing you down, how quick is your initial burst in getting away from people rather than just being the fastest guy for 40 yards? Like sometimes I would think that being the fastest guy for five yards could be a huge advantage. Yeah. Cause that gives you the amount of separation you need. And at that point, if you see the end goal in line and you know, in front of you, which is the goal line, you're not you're going to do what it takes to not get caught or uh, to, to really cross the end zone. But I think the one drill you can't really test this. And this is the one thing I look for uh, when I'm watching film is how well guys play in certain situations, in the crucial situations. That's third down offense or defense, uh, red zone, uh, two minutes in a game, four minutes in the game when people are trying to either come back or close out a game. You want to see those situations because the NFL is all about pressure and if you can't perform in pressure situations I don't care how tall how fast how elusive you are you're worthless to me as a football player to put it you know bluntly but you really have to perform well in pressure situations because if you're not that shows that hey man we really can't depend on you when we need it the most and in the NFL it's all about situational football because you only get 16 games you only get finite chances to where you can win a game or lose a game. Uh, that's why the gl- games are, are always close in the NFL is that that margin of error um, is, is small at the pro level as opposed to in college. So you really have to be on your A game all throughout the game. And if you can't perform in pressure situations, then it, it pushes you down my board, so to speak. So if you're going to some of these all-star games that feature players from smaller schools or even seeing some of the smaller schools in action, what is the biggest thing that you can take away from how do you 
look at a team that might not be any good and devoid of a lot of talent and see a talented player on that team and try to project that out because are they good because they're just so much better than the physical competition that they're playing with and seeing them at the next level up in terms of competition they might not be any good like how do you parse that information or you see a guy who doesn't really play well but he's in a bad system and you can't really hold that against him like I assume that's where you find sort of your diamond in the rough type players will talent always went out in these situations or is there something that you can look at and say well he's a good player this is just the wrong circumstance for him yeah that's a great question that's one that a lot of people don't ask often um because for instance i was at the 2015 or 16 it was the first celebration bowl down in atlanta which was between uh north carolina A&T and Alcorn state and i you know again i love going into games where i have no preconceived thoughts or ideas about these guys. And again, we break down the FCS in, in our college football coverage that we do throughout the year at football game plan. So I have an idea of these guys. You see these names and you watch a little film and then you, you know, put together a preview. But when I got to the, to the game and <laughs> this running back, every time he touched the ball, it just looked like he was playing in fast forward <laughs> and everybody else was playing slow. And, and he was fast in all directions. It was Tariq Cohen. And every time he touched the ball, this was his sophomore year. So every time he touched the ball, it felt like it was a big play. He had a punt return for a touchdown and came up, I want to say, maybe two or three yards short of rushing for 300 yards that day. So I was like, wow, this dude can legit play. Fast forward to his junior and senior season, you're watching, you're watching him at 5'6", 185 or 175, whatever the case may be, as the lead running back in a power running offense. So they're running eye formation. They're running him behind these big linemen. And you're watching him not get touched. And you, the, the thing that you have to realize that translate is speed and elusiveness. Fast guys are going to be fast, whether you're playing at North Carolina A&T or playing at Michigan. If you can make the guy miss, you can make the guy miss. And when you watch that, you're able to say, okay. And what helps me out a lot, to be honest, is being able to go and cover the NFL because you're at practice, you're at training camp, you see what pro explosiveness and pro agility and pro speed looks like. So you're easily able to extract that when you're watching college players you can say okay this guy is just fast because it's you know he's good amongst other college players that guy right there has pro speed he has he has the juice as as we like to call it so when you watch Tariq Cohen you're like okay this translates because I mean he's playing at a different speed and it's consistent and you know I remember one game in particular it was against North Carolina so he played up in this ball game it was they ran a dive plate which goes right down the middle of the defense and he was able to make four guys miss, cut it back across the field, and break a 60-yard run. He didn't get touched at all. He stepped out of bounds. And so it was interesting to see a guy that small playing at that level against a Power 5 program make all the defenders miss without touching him and then have the speed to break off a long run after doing all, that, all of the, the shake moves and stuff like that and then step out of bounds. So he literally didn't get touched on a 60-yard play that started down the middle of their defense. So you watch, they say, okay, yeah, he'll be able to play at the pro level. So you watching pro football at practice and seeing what works and seeing what speed and agility and strength looks like, because you're able to see that from an offensive lineman perspective too, um, helps you at the college level be able to say, that's a pro player, that's a pro player, that's just a really good college player and be able to work your way that way. 
Do you find even when it pertains to offensive linemen or even some of the non-skill position players? Because if you see power, you see speed and see how that can translate at the next level, you can kind of gauge that out. But offensive linemen, potentially defensive linemen, safeties at smaller schools, do you think they get an unfair rep because they are playing at the smaller schools and generally speaking, those guys are drafted out of larger programs? Yeah, they, they really do get an unfair uh, rep because people look at their school and think that, oh, oh, he played at this FCS school, he sucks. Because if he was good, then he'd play at Michigan. Or you see people do it, I hate when people do it to Division three athletes. You know, oh, they just play Division three ball. Like, no, the, you know, if you're, let's say you're in the state of Minnesota or state of Wisconsin, better example. The only Division one school is the University of Wisconsin. There's no FCS, there's no D2, it's University of Wisconsin, and D3. So you had no options to go to an FCS program or D2 school. You had to go D3. So you are only able to play where you're able to play. And a lot of these guys that are going to these smaller schools, maybe they're coming out of high school, undersized, just a half tick slow. And by the time they get get you know college food in them and being able to eat three times a day and work out, you know, the way you do as a college athlete, they grow and develop into their bodies and they become what you see them become. Um, and a lot of times a power five program, they want finished products coming out of high school. Well, a lot of these dudes at 16, 17 years old, just not there yet. So you got to develop. Um, that's what the benefit of the college athlete that goes to a small school gets. They get the four to five year development of nutrition, strength and conditioning. So with that being the backdrop, uh, you know, pro team watching the small college guy, let's say a lineman, you know, play and they see him dominate and they say, well, he's dominating because he's at a smaller school. You have to think in terms of, wait, if he's doing that here, imagine if we're able to get him with better resources, better access to nutrition and strength and conditioning program, because not every weight room or every nutritional plan is the same at different colleges. You know, I played at University of Louisiana back in 99, and we didn't know what a training table was when we had a friend of ours come, you know, stop by the school and talk. He went to LSU. He was like, yo, I can't wait to get back to school so I can go eat at the training table. He was like, well, what's that? He was like, I don't have a training table. Uh, bro, I have no idea what you're talking about. And this was like full-fledged meals of you get steak, you get lobster, you get all the stuff you need as an athlete to really build your body up. We were eating at the cafeteria like the regular students, you know? And so not every school, even though we were Division One, not every school has the same things. So if you're watching a guy at, you know, uh, Elon ball out as a lineman. Don't think in terms of he just dominated small competition. Think of it in terms of, okay, as a pro team, we have a better nutritional plan. We have a better strength and conditioning program. We have better access to weight and he doesn't have to worry about school. He can just work out, eat and develop all day and all throughout the course of the time we have him. That's a guy that we can build. And to me, that's the real true value of having upside that people like to talk about. Well, I know for years, like the Phoenix Suns, like in, during the Steve Nash years, they would take on a lot of these veterans because they knew that they could rehabilitate them because for whatever reason, they just had the best medical staff there was. They had the right programs. If you were an aging veteran, uh, maybe they put you through like those TRT cycles or did like the, the pallet replacement. I don't know what the hell they were doing, but they were <laughs> able to keep all of these people healthy for so long that when you do scout the smaller schools, would you like – both organizationally, whether you know that this is a system that can produce pro players or you're familiar with how their coaches work, they, 
they really put a lean onto, hey, you're not just super talented. We have a good system in place here that teaches you how to work at the next level if you decide to go to that. Do you think that differentiates some of the smaller schools between themselves? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You look at um, a Division three school in particular, Mount Union. They're nestled in a football state with Ohio State. You have Cincinnati there. You have uh, University of Ohio um, you have three major division one programs and I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting another one, but Toledo, you have all the schools in the Mac, put it that way in Ohio. Right. And then you have this division three program and you have good FCS programs, Youngstown state Dayton is a real good one. Um, and then you have this division three program in, in Alliance, Ohio and Mount union that just dominates. And so if you're a kid that is getting recruited by division three school, you're looking at Mount union, like, man, what do they do differently than the division three school in my neck of the woods, obviously they have a plan in place. They have a program. They can develop me and get me to where I need to be um, as an athlete. So, yeah, certain Division three schools are different. It, again, every college program is different than, than the others. Uh, NFL Tina does a great job of really uh, building up the small college, you know, student athletes that they, they're able to get draft or, web, or rather sign as undrafted free agents are the Indianapolis Colts. They have no problem taking guys that played at a smaller school or bringing in a lot of undrafted free agents that played at a smaller school, getting those guys into their program and they become all pros. I mean, you saw Robert Mathis become one of the all time greats uh, out of Alabama A&M. You see Darius Leonard, what he's able to do right now coming from South Carolina state and playing at a higher level. So they have no problem uh, seeing talent at the small school level, knowing that, Hey, we can cultivate that and build him up and get him up to that, power five level right away yeah and even when you look at the colts uh, someone like pierre garçon comes out of mount union so they're okay. familiar familiar with the pipeline i guess the big thing right now is i saw you did an interview with uh with jerry uh, legeria sneed from louisiana tech so this is someone who played corner uh, as a junior played safety as a senior do you think that the market for versatile players like that is going overlooked right now just based on the different schemes that you might need to employ in the NFL week to week based on the opponent. Cause it's not like people are going to like, this is our defense. It's never going to change. You're always going to stand there. I would think that having hybrid type players, especially on defense could really go a long way. Especially in the NFL where you only have four to six players on game day active. So you have to be able to maximize your roster. You want a lot of versatility because the situation may call for it. Your guy may, you're starting nickel may go down with an injury and you're going to, you're going to look to a guy on the side and say, Hey man, we need you to step in and play nickel. Nah, man, I'm only a strong safety. Like, no, you better get out there and play nickel. So you need guys that are versatile. So a guy like Legereus Sneed, who has experience uh, playing uh, both corner and safety. Uh, you like that about his game. You like an Isaiah Simmons from Clemson being able to play multiple positions. You want that position flexibility because it may change week to week because depending on who you play. Let's say, for instance, LeJarrius Sneed, we, okay, this week we need you at safety because we're playing a team that really only has two receivers. Um, they, they struggle with pass protection, so they'll, they're likely to keep that tight end in as a blocker. Uh, they'll use their backs in the passing game. So you can be back deep a little bit more and just make plays on the ball left or right. Or this week we're playing a team that has three strong receivers in addition to a tight end that they'd like to push vertically down the field. 
So we may need you to match up one-on-one against this tight end or this bigger inside slot receiver uh, because we have a guy that isn't as uh, you know physical. We need you to play, replace him here this week because of the matchup. If he didn't have that versatility, he wouldn't have those options. So the more versatile you are, which I like about his game, the more valuable you become as a pro prospect. So heading into the draft this year, what would you say is the deepest position looking at it? Because all I keep hearing from people, it's wide receiver. Like you have these stud wide receivers at the top, but then there's this next tier of receiver that's also good. And then by the time you're into the fourth round, there's still guys to take. Is, is that true? Like, is there that many wide receivers who are going to be good in the NFL? Here's the thing. Um, yeah, there's that many receivers. Okay, put that out there. I, this year I graded 120 receivers. So for me, when, when folks ask that question, is it a deep class? I always think every class is a deep class. You just got to dig deeper enough to find the talent. Um, And it's all about where you find the talent. And if you're only focused on, you know, the senior bowl roster or guys that go to the, to the the, uh, combine, then you're going to, you know, say, okay, well, this is all the good talent out there, but we see this time and time again, more guys coming to the league undrafted and stay. And so some, I want to say this was last year at the beginning of the season, there were more undrafted players in the league than drafted players. Um, so you have to really cast a wide net when you find in talent. That's why we're able to grade 689 prospects in our draft guide this year, uh, because we go so wide and so far to find talent, even up into Canada and find talent. Um, so yes, wide receiver by nature of the position where you can go four deep, you have your splits, your flankers, your slots, your bigger inside receivers. So yeah, you're going to find a a deeper crop of players. You're going to find a deeper crop of cornerbacks and safeties as well. Uh, Where the draft isn't as deep this year, I find it interesting. Uh, One defensive tackle, I don't think it's as deep of a class um, where you, I really had to work hard to find, you know, 30 guys, right? Um, And interesting enough, flex tight end. Normally you find a bunch of flex tight ends, guys that are essentially big wide receivers that don't want to block. But now this year, I found more inline guys and more H-backs as opposed to these flex receiver type uh, tight ends. Uh, It was only six I was able to find and and actively grade as a flex guy. Everyone else fell into the other category. So maybe these bigger receivers are starting to learn, or bigger tight ends are starting to learn a little bit more uh, about how to block well or block enough to where you could trust them inline. Well, how much do you think goes hand in hand with the way that the NFL has evolved in terms of roster construction? Like the reason I would guess that there's so many undrafted players versus drafted players, at least historically now, and there's ever been because those guys don't cost a lot of money. You can fill up the back end of your roster, keep underneath the salary cap. And if you can mine 95% of the talent from that spot or just be better evaluators and just know, hey, we don't need to draft this guy in the seventh round. We can let him go undrafted, sign him for less two days from now and have a guy on our roster for a really long time there could be that aspect to it too but in terms of flex tight ends do you think that you're seeing fewer of them only because you know blocking is at such a premium right now to protect your quarterback there's less running on the go but if you're going to play three wide and use three actual receivers that having an inline tight end could be a huge advantage to mixing in some run plays whether it be on a draw or running off that edge that all of a sudden, it's not quite as flashy, obviously, but you know you can keep your job in the NFL. And if you do go undrafted in this circumstance, you could catch on with the team potentially. Love the way you're thinking right there, Pat. You're thinking in terms of 
roster construction and value from a business sense. Yes, it makes sense. If I know I can get this guy, let's say, for instance, an, an example to, to what you point to, if I'm the Cincinnati Bengals and it's all about maximizing your options and, you know, really trying to build your roster out, I would go with Chase Young, number one, because he's the best player in the draft, right? I also know that a quarterback that I can win with will get bypassed because the league tends to do dumb things. So if I take Chase Young, number one, I know at pick 33, I can get Jalen Hurts. So I can come away with the best defensive player, best player in the draft in Chase Young and a starting quarterback that's tough, that plays well in the situation and it has, still has that upside left in his game. And I've solved two major issues with two picks. Um, and now I can work the rest of my draft, especially if I'm able to hit on these small college guys. If I trust my scouting department, like the coaches tend to do, they that extra part of the draft, the eighth round, we like to call it, where you're talking about the undrafted free agents, is just an extension of your draft class. And the work that you put in all season, you know, okay, I know I have this receiver, Menashe Bailey from Morgan State that no one is talking about, that I've seen four times live this season. So, yeah, we'll operate the first seven rounds and work our way this way and let everybody go and try to get the, the receiver from Auburn or the receiver from, you know, Big U State. Because I know I could sign Menashe Bailey and for, you know, put him in, onto my lineup and allow him to have success. Uh, and people will say, well, where did he come from? Well, we studied him all season. We just knew we were the only ones that really studied him and know what he could bring to the table. And we have a program that can cultivate that. As far as the tight end position, to, to answer your question, I think it also depends on what you're seeing in college football. A lot of guys at the um, at that position are not making their way up to the Division One level because you look at a lot of the guys that we have seen uh, thrive at that position as of late. They're coming from the uh, group of five maybe or FCS programs because they're probably coming out of high school as taller, slower receivers. And a lot of coaches at the Power Five level may not have the time to – grow and develop a guy into what you ultimately see from a Dallas Goddard that went to South Dakota state or um, what you're going to see this year coming out from uh, the FCS level, like an Adam Troutman, you know, so you may not see that or the Princeton tight ends that we saw go out in abundance last year, uh, you know, in the NFL there were four guys right now that are on NFL rosters from Princeton that play tight end. And so a power five guy may not have had the opportunity to really bring those guys in, wait for them to develop and, and really get the maximization out there, out their skill set. So they're just going to other smaller schools. And and right now teams are trying to scrape the top layer of the, you know, the power fives. And then hopefully they can sign some guys uh, as undrafted free agents from these lower levels. But the problem is when they don't bring those guys in with draft capital, like, Hey, we draft this guy in his fourth round. We got to make sure he can play. They still are doing the same things by not giving those guys that they ended up signing a true opportunity. Do you think that can be somewhat, if you don't have a good organization and a good scouting department and you draft a bust in the first round because they carry that first round label, obviously teams feel committed to trying to get the most out of this asset that they pump so much capital into. Do you think the, the actual good teams, like everyone's going to make mistakes. We, we've seen that happen. Results will show that almost every team makes mistakes in the first round. Do you think the good organizations are the ones that can get away from that as quickly as possible? Absolutely, you have to. You see it at the college level. You see the guy that comes in, parade All-American, five-star, you know, you know, he was USA Today, All-American, Gatorade Player of the Year, and he stinks. And, you know, you have this walk-on guy that is outplaying him, performing him at practice, but 
you're not confident enough in your situation to say, you know what, this dude is better. We want to play the best guy because the best guy will help us win. They'll try to find ways to play the guy that they missed on just because he was a highly touted recruit. He was a five-star. It looks good. It won't look bad in the media if we're playing a walk-on over a parade All-American. Case in the case in point, why was Lloyd Carr consistently playing, you know, Drew Henson over Tom Brady when he had to go to Tom Brady every time to go and win the game that Drew Henson got them behind in? Uh, because Drew Henson was a parade All-American player of the year and stuff like that. Same thing at the pro level. How long is it going to take Chicago to get rid of Mr. Trubisky to realize, you know what? We made a mistake. We probably should have taken Pat Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. This guy isn't the guy. We got to move on quick. No, instead of them signing Teddy Bridgewater and moving on right away, they didn't sign him because they wanted a true competition. So they bring in a guy that they know Trubisky should beat out in Nick Foles instead. That's a situation of a team not recognizing they made a mistake and moving on. Juxtaposed to a team like Arizona, seeing Josh Rosen out there, and you're like, you know what? We have a perfect storm situation coming in with Colin Murray, with the coach that ran that offense that was trying to sign him and saw him as a high school player, competed against him in college. This is the perfect match. Rosen, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We can move on right away and eat the cost. That's a good organization. That's a good organizational move. So I want to circle back to wide receivers for a second because running backs, by and large, I'm sure you're not happy about this, that they just – it's almost as if running backs shouldn't exist in the first round by most metrics by what you need to pay them. Like, uh, why would you spend the eighth overall pick on a running back when you could draft one of these guys in the fifth round who you know you're not going to lean on as a workhorse the entire time? You're going to have a split backfield, and you can pay them significantly less to do – 90 to 95 percent of the job like when do you think would actually be a decent time to draft a running back highly in a draft is there ever a circumstance is there a situation where talent is so immense that you say we need this guy on our team for the next three to four years he is going to be amazing he's going to change everything and can people accurately scout that or is that just a product of circumstance do you think first of all you you always want to take talent high you know, people could talk that nonsense on Twitter all they want to and say, <laughs> you know, oh, I can I could find me a guy in the back end. Yeah, okay, cool. You you go get, you know, Joe Blow average running back. I go get Bo Jackson. I'm going to beat you every time because I have the better player um, and the more explosive player. And it also puts a – if you see a, a Saquon Barkley, you take Saquon Barkley high. You don't take uh, the guy that Moster, you know, from San Francisco. You don't take him high because you, he doesn't do the same things a Saquon Barkley can do. And, you know, you put, a, you put a Saquon Barkley in San Francisco's offense and watch how much better their offense will become. Uh, but you put Moster in the Giants' offense, and he won't be the same. So it's all about the talent. And if you take better talent, nine times out of ten, you're going to win. And so if you have a back that's explosive, dynamic, that does a lot of things that not the average back can do, your Adrian Petersons, your uh, Saquon Barkleys, those guys, you take those guys high. Um, but other other than that, if you can find guys that have certain traits that you look for, hey, we only use backs that that are one-cut downhill runners. Yeah, they come a dime a dozen. We only use backs that can really just catch the ball in the backfield um, and don't really like to get hit. Yeah, they're, they're a dime a dozen. But guys that can do it all gives you a different lay, layer of threat. For instance – if Bo Jackson is my starting running back, I now have to worry about 
the threat of the long run. I have to worry about him breaking tackles. I also have to worry about him in the passing game. And let's use, if you use a more contemporary example, Saquon Barkley, I have to worry about him on all three downs. But if you utilize, you know, San Francisco's model when player X comes in, and that's the reason why their backfield looks the way it does, because they got three backs that all do the same thing. So it's almost like they are a carbon copy. So they found three guys that are exactly the same from a skill set, speed, explosiveness, elusiveness standpoint. That's their model. That's their back. Not everybody can do that. That's a testament to their scouting department or evaluation department and knowing what to look for in that position for their offense. So it all depends. But I will say this. If they had a guy that can do all three, they would need five. You know, so that's the difference. I guess the mistake that it seems like teams make is you talk about these guys that are absolutely amazing. You can talk about Berkeley. You talk about Bo Jackson, Adrian Peterson. You can throw McCaffrey and LaDainian Tomlinson into this mix too. It just seems like those players don't exist every year, but teams want to like to believe that they do. Same with the quarterback position. People like to think, um, you know, you can, oh, you can get a uh, Cam Newton every year. You can get an Andrew Luck every year. Yet they find a way to, to talk themselves and taking the Christian Ponders, the Ryan Tannehills, the Jake Lockers, you know, uh, the Blaine Gabberts. Every year in the first round, the Justin Herberts, every year in the, in the, in the first round, people talk themselves into, into thinking that every year is the same at that position. And, you know, we, they talk about the running back position or those guys that you mentioned don't win Super Bowls. Well, neither do these quarterbacks that they take in the first round. So um, it, it just you have to have a good team to win at the end of the day. And having good players puts you in the best position to have a good team to win. So teams, again, if you're able to know what you're doing um, from a scouting perspective and a development perspective, you're going to find ways to be consistently good over the course of time. Certain franchises have done that. New England, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, uh, the Chargers. I was about to say San Diego, but Chargers. You know, you find the same teams constantly, constantly do it again. The Broncos. Um, up until this last stretch run where they, they've missed on a bunch of quarterbacks. But if you're able to do it the right way, you're going to always be consistent. Of the first-round quarterbacks this time around, it sounded like you were throwing shade at Justin Herbert. This is what I'm hearing from some people. Other people are, like, enamored with him. But, like, he reeks as first-round top-five pick bust, right? To me, yeah. Um, and here's he reminds me a lot of Paxton Lynch. And when you watch Justin Herbert play – because you hear a lot about Justin Herbert. And so you, okay, let me watch Herbert. Let me see what this is about. And then you say, ah, you watch, you end up watching the whole game. You're like, all right, all right. And let me watch another one. Let me see. Cause maybe I'm, maybe I missed something. And you five games in and you still waiting to see what it is that people are talking about. That tells you that that's not the guy you want in the first round. And people get enamored with creating a football player. Oh, well, he has a size. He's 6'6". Six, six. He's 240 pounds. He runs a 4'5". He can run with the football. Look at his one throw he made. What they don't talk about is the 17 seconds he had to make that throw and what happens when he's pressured or blitzed or when the team needs him to make plays consistently down the stretch. You know, the one game I could point to that he really played a, a solid game was his last game, the Rose Bowl. So he had 30-plus games of playing, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah. But you had one game where he ran the ball, and you're like, all right, cool. So now that you know you're willing to erase 31 other games of average play because you saw one game against a team that probably was upset they didn't make the playoffs in that game. So I'm not I'm not as high on Herbert. I think he's more of a, a number two type quarterback as opposed to a franchise starter. 
Um, and I just don't understand why teams don't see it that way because teams tend to think arrogantly uh, of, oh, well, he has this. I can make him better. I know I can coach him to be what he should be. What I And you're really knocking the coach that coached him for four to five years saying, well, dang, dang he couldn't do it. I could do it. Well, okay, cool. If it was that easy, then that coach would have done it because football is not that hard. Uh, is Joe Burrow and Andrew Luck Cam Newton type first overall pick, or is he someone who teams are going to take because he's the best who's available and they need a quarterback? Joe Burrow is a Matt Ryan number one overall pick. I like Joe Burrow, um, and I think if I was to grade Joe, put Joe Burrow's grade what I have for for him now up against last year's class, he would have been my number two quarterback behind. Uh, Dwayne Haskins and slight a half point above uh, Kyler Murray, you know, so he's, you know, he's a good quarterback starting franchise quarterback. I like Joe Burrow. People are focused on this year, but I thought last year he played the same way. It just had better, a better offense uh, this year than last year. Cause you watched the Auburn game last year. You watched the UCF game last year. You saw the same tough quarterback that you grew in love this past season. He was doing the same things last year. Um, they just didn't have the overall team success, uh, but he was still the same player. I, again, I'm big on a quarterback being able to handle pressure, being able to overcome mistakes early in the game to fight through that and win. And one that is not afraid to take a hit while making throws, that's Joe Burrow. So I'll take Joe Burrow all day. I, I do believe he's a franchise quarterback. Is Tua a franchise quarterback despite Miami's health concerns with him, which sounds like Obvious misdirection that they really want to take him, but don't want to trade up to take him. <laughs> right. Here's what I say about Tua. Tua reminds me a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo. Ooh. And you can take it how you want it. And here's the thing about Tua, and I, I say this in not as a knock, but just a, a reality. I think people get locked in on their initial viewing of a prospect. So when you look at Josh Rosen and you saw him step in as a true freshman and play well, because you don't normally see true freshmen play well at that position, you kind of get that image locked in your head, like, man, this dude can play. But you realize he hadn't gotten better over the course of his time. You saw that with Herbert, a guy that stepped in as a freshman, played early, and you're like, man, this, they got something with this with this dude. But over the course of time, he just hadn't grown. He really was maxed out. With Tua, I think everyone has that image of the national championship game as a freshman where he came in, and they only remember – the game-winning touchdown pass. What they forget is the horrible interception he threw in the game, the scary touchdown throw he made to, uh, I think that was Ridley in the back of the end zone, when he just threw it blindly in between defenders, where the defender just kind of didn't move for the ball. Had he turned around, it would have been an interception that hit him right in the chest. And the sack he took, the play before he threw the Hail Mary to the receiver streaking down the sideline. And you look at that moment, you only focus on the end result and the story behind it, how you replace Jalen Hurts and all that stuff like that. Um, and you look at him over the course of the game, over the course of his career, not showing up big in big games, always still making those questionable head scratching. Yo, what are you what are you doing? What kind of throw was that? Uh, why would you throw that ball there against Tennessee where he's scrambling out, did a great job of escaping pressure, gets to the sideline. So he's literally right by the sideline to either step out or throw the ball away and throws a perfectly accurate ball into the chest of the Tennessee defender. Like, what are you doing? Those type of plays you can't have your franchise quarterback to have. So 
And you also factor in the fact that he's been injured every year. He's played at Alabama. So I think what he does well, he does have great accuracy and great placement. And he has shown an ability to escape a little bit of pressure. And so all of that is good. That's what you want. And the accuracy, again, to be accurate to where you're hitting guys on the move to where they can do stuff after the catch, that's great. You need that. That's something that a lot of quarterbacks don't have. So I do like him. He's my number three quarterback uh, with a with an 80 grade. So I do think he is a starter that you can win with, a la Jimmy Garoppolo. I just worry about the injury concerns, and I think he's a see-it-throw type of a passer. I don't think he anticipates well. And if you notice, a lot of his passes are, are always coming out fastballs. So there's no touch. There's no arc. Is straight line fastball. So you combine that with him also having the propensity to throw blind. You're going to see a lot of interceptions. You're going to see a lot of batted passes at the line of scrimmage. Um, so those are some things he's going to have to work on. But I do think he can start. I just wouldn't take the talk for him being like this generational prospect is not is is so far off base because we hadn't seen him rise to the occasion in big games outside of one play. So you like Jalen Hurts more than you like Tua? Absolutely, because here's the thing. When you look at Jalen Hurts, um, you look at a guy that came in as a freshman, played really well, and if it wasn't for Deshaun Watson doing Deshaun Watson things, uh, you saw Jalen Hurts drive that team down and scored what looked to be the winning touchdown with a minute and a half left in that game, only for Deshaun Watson to go right back down the field against the vaunted Alabama defense and get the game-winning touchdown. So we saw him as a freshman lead his team to a title game and nearly got them to the national championship game, got them back there again. He gets benched. Most quarterbacks would have transferred out and gone on by the merry way, Jacob Eason. When you look at Jalen Hurts, he stayed, got humble, worked on his passing because literally he was a one-dimensional player early on in his career. When he got opportunities as a junior to, to play in spot duty because they were blowing everybody out, he showed that he had improved a little bit on the, in his passing. When he really needed him against Georgia, he stepped in and led with his arm and also his legs and got them that game to get them back into the championship game where they lost to Clemson again. So when you look at now going to Oklahoma, short notice, summer session, having to digest that offense and to become a Heisman finalist, another year where he became a Heisman finalist, um, putting up prolific numbers, both passing and rushing, and showing the mental toughness to really humble himself, get better, show the improvement at Oklahoma. And when was the last time you saw Nick Saban choke up about a player? He did that with Jalen Hurts. So you have two guys at Blue Blood programs that will speak glowingly of him, his leadership, his maturity. And when you watch the growth he has made since his freshman season throwing the football, his career arc in college reminds me so much of Dak Prescott. And if I were to tell fans out there like, hey, you have a chance to get a Dak Prescott in this class. Would you take Dak Prescott in the first round? Uh, knowing what you know about Dak Prescott, many fans would say, yes, of course. That's a solid quarterback that can help you win games. That's Jalen Hurts. Yeah, like give me one running back from the middle rounds that everyone's just overlooking. That's a great question. I look at, um, because I like how people's vision and footwork tend to tie together. uh, And I like the big playability. Pete Guerrero out of Monmouth is someone no one is talking about. Um, He played three years at at Monmouth. You don't see the FCS uh, player enter the draft early. He did, but he has a legitimate reason why. He ran track at Monmouth, ran 100 meters, ran 200 meters. He was an all-conference player, uh, performer as a track sprinter, Um, but also ran for 1,000 yards as a freshman, uh, 1,000 yards as a sophomore, and this past year, five yards short of 2,000 yards. Um, So he has the home run hitting capability. I was on a broadcast 
for four of those games where when they needed the play to be made, Pete Guerrero made the play and made it look easy. Never seen him get caught from behind. And, you know, he's a guy that has the home run hitting speed. Imagine a guy like Deion Lewis with sprinter speed. That's Pete Guerrero out of Mama. Okay. Emery Hunt, thanks for being on. Football game plan on YouTube. F-ball game plan on Twitter. At The Athletic, where can everyone get your draft guide? They can find that draft guide at footballgameplan.com slash 2020 draft guide. 689 prospects, 724 pages of content, individual scouting reports. So you get a full scouting report on Pete Guerrero, just like you would on DeAndre Swift. We go deep with all of the prospects. It's not list. It's all individual scouting reports that you'll find. Footballgameplan.com slash 2020 draft guide. All right, man. Thanks for being on. I'm Pat Mayo. You can follow me at the PME, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You want to get into that draw for 100 DK bucks? Easy. Sub to the audio podcast, five-star review, DraftKings handle, something you enjoy about the show. Boom, you're in that draw. You want to get in the $20 draw? Smash the like for the video. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section. Tell me your favorite middle round prospect that no one else is talking about right now, except for you. And you put that in the comment section so I can see it too. Anyway, I'm Pat Mayer. We'll have more draft coverage coming at you over the course of the next few weeks to get yourself ready. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.